You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. Today on the Useless Information Retrocast, you'll hear a number of totally true stories, including the one about a guy who gained notoriety as Leonardo de Tonale, and that's because he was sneaking under library tables at California College Libraries and painting the toenails of unsuspecting young women. And then you'll learn about a woman in England who failed her driver's road test a staggering 39 times, and believe it or not, she doesn't even come close to the person who currently holds the world record. Or how about a man who spent nearly his entire life studying at Columbia University, reportedly because if he stopped attending, he would forfeit a substantial inheritance bequeathed to him by a wealthy relative. Well, all those stories, the question of the day, today's retro sponsor, and so much more, they're all coming up next on today's edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. I am Steve Silberman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 20th edition of the Useless Information Retrocast. Now, what you're about to hear are some of the shorter stories that I stumbled upon while doing my research. But rest assured, I'll return in a couple of weeks with a captivating full-length story. So without further ado, let's dive right into today's collection of stories. Many years ago, while attending the University of Rochester, I lived in one of the towers of their graduate living center, which I just checked has been renamed the Southside Living Area. And while this place was a step up from my undergraduate dorm room, I mean, my roommate and I had separate rooms, a kitchenette, and our own bathroom, I must tell you that this place was a dump. It was roach-infested. I clearly remember the roaches every morning when I flipped on the light in the kitchen. They would just scramble to go back to their hiding places. It was disgusting. Now, my first roommate while living there was much older than me. How much older? Well, that's hard to say, and that's because I was an immature 21-year-old. You know, so anyone who's even a few years older back then, they seem like senior citizens to me. And although his name is long slipped from my memory, I do distinctly recall him sharing his aspiration of being a college student for as many years as possible. Basically, as long as he could secure research grants to cover both his tuition and living expenses, he was determined to remain a perpetual student. However, an unforeseen obstacle arose in his path. That is that the university informed him that he'd exceeded their five-year limit for residing in the graduate dorm. So, needless to say, he wasn't my roommate for very long. I seem to recall he was gone within a couple of weeks. The reason I mention that is because the story came to mind as I was putting together the one that I'm about to tell you. It's of a man named William Cullen Brian Kemp, and he was born on November 10th of 1850 in Janesville, Wisconsin. As a little side note, he was named after the famed poet William Cullen Bryant. 
Anyway, not long after he was born, his family picked up and they moved to New York City, where he attended both grammar and preparatory school. Fast forward to the early 1900s, and Billy Kemp had become the focal point of numerous newspaper articles chronicling his life as a perpetual student at Columbia University. He first matriculated into Columbia in 1872, and remarkably, he remained enrolled there until his passing on February 3rd of 1929 at the age of 78. And along the way, Kemp picked up a number of degrees. Are you ready? Listen to this. He had a doctorate in medicine, bachelor and master's of art, bachelor and master's of law, a PhD, degrees in civil, electrical, and mechanical engineering, as well as degrees in chemistry and pharmacy. He also had three separate Bachelor of Science degrees, which several newspapers concluded their listing of his degrees with, and I'm guessing this is a joke because they wrote it as BS, BS, BS. I'll let you fill in the blank there. So you're probably wondering just what did he accomplish with this extensive collection of degrees? Well, the answer is quite straightforward. Absolutely nothing. He simply continued on with his academic journey, and he made room 902 of Columbia's Livingston Hall dormitory his home. And I should probably just throw in the little factoid that that building has since been renamed Wallach Hall. But Kemp's notoriety didn't stem from his voluntary, continuous pursuit of higher education. Instead, his fame was born out of a rather unusual circumstance. You see, according to newspaper accounts from the early part of the 20th century, Billy Kemp began his unusual journey as an abysmal student. He did not like college at all. So to remedy this, Kemp found himself the beneficiary of a wealthy relative's bequest. It ensured Kemp an annual income of $2,500. That's over $90,000 today. But it was contingent upon his continued enrollment at Columbia University, with the payment ceasing the moment he left the institution. Basically, Kemp had no choice but to stay in college for the remainder of his life. And that was the story that was repeated over and over for most of Kemp's life. Which, of course, made me wonder, is it really true? Well, it turns out that it wasn't. At least the uh, wealthy benefactor portion of the story isn't true. In my research, I found an interview with Kemp that appeared on page 10 of the March 28, 1922 edition of the Yonkers Statesman. So, what better way to find out the true story than to read the exact words that came directly from Billy Kemp's mouth. Here we go. Quote, Someone conceived the story that I was going to college to win an inheritance left to me on the condition that I became a perpetual student. That wasn't so. My father and uncles, being merchants, were opposed to my going to the university. They believed the college education more of a detriment than a benefit to one going into business. Despite their objections, I was able to enter Columbia in 1872. After two years, I decided to follow their wishes. I left and joined the house in which my father was a partner. Unquote. The article then describes how his family's business was involved with foreign trade, so Billy went to Spain to learn Spanish and then traveled all over Europe. He was very successful in business, and after his father passed on, he opted to re-enroll in Colombia after a 22-year absence, so he wasn't there the whole time. Quote, 
I entered Columbia Law School in 1896. Four years later, I was graduated and admitted to the bar, but I did not care to take up the practice of law. Instead, I decided to study in the School of Political Science and Philosophy. Unquote. So there you have it. William Kemp wasn't in school because he risked losing an inheritance. Just like my former college roommate, he was there because he loved getting an education. In fact, about one month after he died, it was revealed that his estate was valued at nearly $250,000. That's over $9 million today. In other words, Kemp had no need to work another day, and he opted to spend the last 33 years of his life studying at Columbia. So I guess the moral of this story is, don't believe everything that you read. Having been a high school teacher for 30 years, many times each year students would be missing from my class because they were off taking their driving test. And of course, some passed and many failed on their first attempt. But perhaps the most memorable of all these students was one girl that I had in an academic assistance class that I taught. In fact, she was the only student in that class, so you know her absence was quite noticeable the day she was off taking her road test. So there I am, I'm just sitting in my classroom grading papers when she suddenly bursts in. She was angry and she began to tell me, I should say she was using very colorful language if you know what I mean, she began to tell me how the evaluator had failed her. Not that she failed the test, the evaluator failed her. She told me that as soon as she was told she failed, she started screaming at the evaluator, which included a large number of F-bombs. So once she was done and she calmed down a bit, I asked her where she had taken the test. And she said she had taken it in Hudson, New York. And that's when I pointed out to her that they probably only had one road test evaluator and she'd probably get the same exact woman the next time. Needless to say, she did get the same evaluator the second time round and she passed. But two times really isn't that bad. There have certainly been others who have made more attempts at getting their license. Take, for example, Mrs. Miriam Hargrave, who found herself sitting in her car on August 15th of 1969, you know, feeling overwhelmed with despair after yet another unsuccessful attempt at her driving test. This had been her 34th consecutive failure. Amidst her tears, she uttered, I never want to drive again. Over eight arduous years, Mrs. Hargrave, age 61 at the time and residing at St. Oswald Road in Lupset, Wakefield, she had managed to establish a rather unique record in Britain, one of persistently falling short in her driving examinations. Feeling utterly shattered, she clung to the fail slip she had just received, indicating three mistakes out of a possible 21, which actually was an improvement over the six errors she had made on her previous attempt. She lamented, I'm absolutely shattered. I thought I drove as well as I have ever done. Mrs. Hargrave was contemplating sending a formal protest letter to the Ministry of Transport expressing her discontent with the situation. She began to wonder if the evaluators in Wakefield were treating her fairly. She speculated, quote, I am beginning to think that the examiners here where I've taken all my tests are too embarrassed to pass me. Mrs. Hargrave even pondered whether they wanted to avoid being known as the individual who finally passed her. 
She disclosed that she has spent more than 200 pounds on driving lessons. It's about $3,900 today. Mr. Arnold Cubitt, a driving instructor with 21 years experience and who had generously provided Mrs. Hargrave with free lessons for four months as a testament to his faith in her potential, expressed profound disappointment. He remarked, quote, I have had many worse drivers than Mrs. Hargrave who have passed the first time. Not surprisingly, a spokesperson for the Ministry Overseeing Driving Examiners in Wakefield declined to comment on the matter. Yet Mrs. Hargrave was not one to give up, and she kept taking the road test. And once again, she failed attempts number 36, number 37, 38, and 39, and they were all taken in Wakefield. Then, on August 3rd of 1970, Mrs. Hargrave was driven 25 miles or 40 kilometers northward to Harrogate. What she didn't know was that she had been brought there to make another attempt at passing her road test. With just one half hour's notice, she got behind the steering wheel and she headed out on the road with the evaluator in the passenger seat. And, to her surprise, she passed on the 40th attempt. She told a reporter, quote, I could have hugged the examiner when he gave me the pink slip that I have dreamed about for such a long time. She added, quote, I was not nervous like all the other times. In fact, I was very confident. Mrs. Hargrave's rationale for obtaining her license was to take her 79-year-old husband, Arnold, on picnics. But that idea would have to wait. That's because she had spent more than 300 pounds, or nearly $6,000 today, on driving lessons, and now she faced the unfortunate reality of being unable to afford the purchase of a car. Quote, I hope to get one soon, but I spent all the money that would have gone on a car on lessons. But I have to tell you, Cha Sasun of South Korea has Mrs. Hargrave beat. You see, beginning in April of 2005, Mrs. Cha diligently took the road test on a daily basis, That was five days a week for a continuous three-year period. And every single time she failed, but she refused to give up. Then her frequency decreased to approximately twice a week, yet her determination remained unwavering. Then, finally, in May 2010, Ms. Cha passed her road test and received her driver's license. It was her, you're going to love this, it was her 960th attempt. And as a reward for her perseverance, Hyundai presented her with a brand new car. And if you're curious about me, it took me 16 attempts to get my license. No, I'm just kidding. I really did pass on my first try. And this next story, which I really love, begins with a quotation. Quote, We call him Leonardo de Tonale, declared Sergeant Farina, an officer with the University of Southern California's campus police. Farina was talking about a suspect who had a peculiar inclination for crawling on the library tables and applying nail polish to the exposed toenails of unsuspecting female students. What would become known as the case of the phantom pedicurist first came to light on Friday, February 29th of 1980. That's when one of the victims noticed a freshly applied coat of nail polish on her big toenails upon departing the Doheny Library. The student's toenails were pink when she entered the library, yet they were green when she left. 
Karina reflected, quote, Maybe she thought it was a fraternity prank at first, but she found another woman in her apartment who had the same experience and they decided to contact authorities. Campus police promptly located a man in his mid-twenties who was neither a student nor an employee at the library, and he was carrying a bag containing approximately 15 bottles of nail polish. The Los Angeles police questioned him with Officer John Lockhart noting, quote, he had about every color you could think of. Nonetheless, the act of adorning someone's toenails without consent amounted to only a misdemeanor. And since the law dictated that the officers must personally witness the wrongdoing to effect an arrest, the man was subsequently released. Nevertheless, the Los Angeles police pledged to file an official report with the city attorney's office, and they would be tasked with deciding whether to issue an arrest warrant or not. I should add that the identity of the suspect was never revealed. But the case went no further because the two women were unwilling to testify in court. Los Angeles Police Sergeant Bob Steele told the Los Angeles Times, quote, I don't think they ever wanted to see the guy again, even in court. Besides, maybe they decided he'd done a good job. There were no further reports of the phantom pedicurist wielding his paintbrush at USC, but police did receive a tip from an anonymous woman, and she said that he may have done the same thing at California State University, Dominguez Hills, the previous year. So they checked the school's newspaper and found a story that was remarkably similar. Quote, He seeks out a lone female and sits across from her in the library. He carries a large folder similar to a portfolio case and sets up as though working on a project. He causes minor disturbances such as dropping pens and paintbrushes. As he drops something, he reaches under and quickly, one brushstroke will do it, paints the big toenail. He drops something else and paints the other. I have to say, I'm not a detective, but that sure sounds like the same person to me. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. According to a 2017 study by the Association for Dressings and Sauces, yes, there's an industry group for everything, the most popular salad dressing here in the United States is, do you know, ranch dressing. 40% of those who responded to their survey chose ranch, with Italian coming in at a distant second place at just 10%. Blue Cheese, Thousand Island, and Caesar, they round out the top five. So I have a two-part question for you. First, in what year? And second, in which U.S. state was ranch dressing first created? 
Now, one hint that I will tell you is that it wasn't first mixed up in California where the Hidden Valley Ranch was located. Well, I'll leave you in suspense for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer to both parts of that question at the end of this podcast. We'll return to our story in just a moment, but now I'd like to ask the ladies a question. Have you ever had the shampoo blues? The shampoo blues, of course, is that dejected feeling you get when your hair becomes dry and unmanageable after a shampoo. If that's been your experience, then here's a way to beat those blues. Try Fitch's Saponified Coconut Oil Shampoo. Use this clear, golden liquid shampoo as often as you like. It will never leave your hair dry or difficult to manage. That's because Fitch's Saponified Shampoo is made from pure, natural oils. Just a little makes oceans of cleansing lather. Rinses out easily, too, for Fitch's Saponified Shampoo contains its own patented rinsing agent. It leaves your hair soft, lustrous, and easy to manage even right after you shampoo it. Yes, you can always use Fitch's Saponified Shampoo with complete confidence and freedom from the shampoo blues. So use it regularly. Buy an economical bottle at your drug or toilet goods counter, or ask for a professional application at your beauty shop. That commercial for Fitch's Saponified Coconut Oil Shampoo is from the January 3rd, 1946 broadcast of Rogue's Gallery. This particular episode was titled Murder at Minden. The show's title is a play on the lead character's name. That's private investigator Richard Rogue, and he was initially played in the series by actor Dick Powell. In a typical episode, Rogue is somehow knocked unconscious, whether that be through a blow to the head, drugs, or some similar means. And while he's in that senseless state, Rogue encounters his alter ego, Yugor, which is actually Rogue spelled backwards. And it's Yugor who points out the overlooked clues and evidence. And once Rogue regains consciousness, he uses that newfound information to crack the case wide open. The series premiered on the NBC network on June 24th of 1945, then it switched to the Mutual Network on September 27th of that same year, then it switched back to NBC from June 23rd, 1946 through September 28th of 1947, after which production went on hiatus. The show's final run was on the ABC network from November 29th, 1950, through November 21st of 1951. Each episode ran 30 minutes in length. As for Fitch's saponified coconut oil shampoo, I should probably first begin by explaining what saponified means. It's really nothing more than the technical term for turning fat or oil into soap. And of course, we don't know what process Fitch used to make their shampoo, but the general idea is that one takes the oil, that's coconut oil in this case, and you mix it with lye. You then heat the mixture up, add a little bit of salt in after it cools, and then filter out the soap. That's really the basic process, although I would not recommend that you try it at home. Frederick Walter Fitch was born on January 28th of 1870 in Webster, Iowa. He was the 10th of 12 children. Then around 1876, his parents split up and his father and two of his brothers left for California, while mom and the remaining children were left impoverished back in Iowa. When Frederick turned eight, his mother bound him out to a farmer, which was a form of child slave labor. Upon turning 20, Frederick went to work for a barber in Boone, Iowa. 
and he was soon able to purchase the barber shop and then sold it six months later at a profit, and he continued in the trade for the next eight years. Along this journey, due to a scalp condition, he would invent the product that would forever change his life. That was a dandruff remover that he named the Ideal Hair Grower and Dandruff Cure. The original name of his company was the Fitch Ideal Dandruff Cure Company, but he soon changed it to the FW Fitch Company. And from there, the company grew to become a multi-million dollar manufacturer of shampoo, hair tonics, and cosmetics. The company did manage to make it through the Great Depression, and they survived World War II through military contracts, but things began to go south once the war ended. Internal disagreements between Fitch, his sons, the company's board of directors, and senior management, it just began to tear the company apart. It wasn't long before the company was sold to Grove Laboratories in 1949. Bristol Myers then purchased Grove Laboratories in 1967, and the Fitch line was gone. It was relabeled under the Sandals brand name, which also is no longer being marketed. As for Frederick Fitch, who was known as the Shampoo King when he's alive, he was 81 years old when he passed away on October 1st of 1951. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And now we're up to the portion of the podcast that I've been calling Footnotes to History. And these are the very short stories printed in newspapers that really require no further research. So I'm just going to read them word for word. And here's the first one. This appeared on page four of the July 21st, 1920 edition of the Independence Daily Reporter. And it is untitled. And I should mention that the paper and the towns mentioned in the story are in Kansas. Selena, July 21st. As a result of a fishing trip which he and Mrs. Mooney took yesterday near Bennington, Clarence Mooney will probably be forced by necessity to purchase a new suit of clothes, another shirt, and a necktie. After sitting on the bank of the river fishing for some time, Mooney decided that he would indulge in a little swim. And so taking advantage of some friendly and nearby bushes, he changed the scenery from a two-piece suit to a one-piece bathing costume and went into the water. The water was fine and he stayed in for some time, finally crawling out with a look of contentment on his face, which vanished when he reached the spot where he had deposited his clothing. For instead of the perfectly good clothes he had left there, there remained only ragged and well-gnawed fragments of what had been a $60 suit of clothes. 
Now, $60 is about $900 today. Quote, the grasshoppers did it, said Mooney in telling of the occurrence this morning. Mr. Mooney brought in samples of the clothing to show what the grasshoppers did. The necktie was absolutely shredded. The collar band had been chewed away. Down one trouser's leg is a series of holes as though moths have been feasting on it for a month. Corporal Sam Showman of the local recruiting station was also a victim of the hoppers while in bathing. He came out of the water to find the pest had chewed holes in his shirt, leaving it unfit for wear and beyond repair. To be honest, I never knew that grasshoppers could be that destructive. Just a little background before I get into this next story, and that is it talks about a guy named Jim Moran, and he was considered to be the master of publicity stunts starting in the 1930s all the way through the 1950s. He passed away in 1999. Anyway, this story is from the July 7th, 1946 edition of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, and this appeared on the front page. The headline reads, Hollywood eccentric hatches ostrich by sitting on an egg. Hollywood, California, July 6th, United Press. Professional screwball Jim Moran today became the foster father of a one-pound, nine-ounce rooster ostrich hatched to an all-star quartet's rendition of Let Me Outta Here. After disturbing Moran with tremendous seismological vibrations from its pecking during the last two days, the bedraggled ostrich finally broke the shell at 10.05 a.m. Quote, It looks just like me, declared Moran proudly. He began sitting on the egg on Father's Day, attired in a special hatching suit of ostrich feathers and sequins. Quote, Now that it's all over, I'm exhausted. And that's not exhausted, it's egg-sausted. In other words, it's exhausted beginning with E-G-G-S. Anyway, now that it's all over, I'm exhausted, panted the eccentric who found a needle in a haystack, sold an icebox to an Eskimo, and went looking for whales in San Francisco Bay. Quote, I'm taking nerve medicine by the gallon. Moran was attended at the crucial hour by pianist Lou Bush and orchestra leaders Frank Duvall, Alvino Ray, and Jack Elliott. They constituted the quartet which crooned the hatching song as the ostrich pecked through its shell. It went like this. Moran popped the baby ostrich into a brooder for 48 hours, refusing even to have it photographed until it gained strength. The mother? She was glaring over the fence when Junior arrived. Mama was banished to another pen when she deserted the egg in a fit of jealousy over her mate's attention to a younger bird. And next up, we have a story from the July 30th, 1957 publication of the Hollywood Citizen News, and this appeared on page 11. The headline reads, Find it in the yellow pages, and he does. Two $50 bills. And by the way, $100 would be worth over $1,000 today. Julius Mackin, 2203 West 24th Street, had his $100 back today and wearily testified to the truth of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company ad. And you probably remember this if you're old enough. Find it in the yellow pages. Mackin turned in his old telephone book but forgot to take out the $250 bills he had hidden in the yellow pages. 
The telephone company let him look over the books at the warehouse. He found the bills 10,000 volumes later. Can you imagine looking through 10,000 volumes of the Yellow Pages? Although I'm not sure most young people today even know what the Yellow Pages refer to. Our four stories from the uh, August 12, 1968 edition of the New York Daily News, and this appeared on page four. The headline reads, Car Gets Kanged by a Marsupial. An unidentified man was driving home along the Grand Central Parkway yesterday morning, and as he drove past LaGuardia Airport, his car was struck by a three-foot kangaroo in mid-hop. Now three feet is about a meter tall. The car and driver survived the encounter. The kangaroo didn't. At least that's the way the story is being told by the Port Authority police at LaGuardia Airport, where the cops say six grown men had spent half the night chasing the kangaroo around a parking lot. Here's the tale as told by Port Authority Patrolman Tom Grozier, who was working at the police desk in the Marine Terminal at LaGuardia at 11.50 p.m. Saturday, when an excited employee of American Airlines ran in and blurted, quote, I want you to know that I'm perfectly sober, and I know you might not believe me, but I just saw a kangaroo hopping around the parking lot, unquote. Naturally, we thought there was something wrong with this guy, Grozier said, but the sergeant and I went out to look anyway. There really was a kangaroo. He was about three feet tall with small little arms and a big thick tail, and he was as strong as hell and jumping all around. Grugia said that he and the Sarge pulled an immediate strategic withdrawal and went for reinforcements consisting of one more cop and three civilians. Duly armed with a dog-catching noose and thick leather gloves, the six men crept stealthily back into parking lot number one, which is surrounded by a five-foot-high fence. We chased the thing back and forth and around and around for about 40 minutes, Grosier went on, but we couldn't catch the crazy thing. One guy had it by the tail for a minute. The kangaroo just wagged him off. The men said they rested for about an hour and put in a call to the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, which promised to send the crew out later in the morning. But after an hour, the men decided to give it another try themselves. The poor kangaroo, seeing the six men back in parking lot number one, took one monster leap over the fence and onto the parkway, where he was run down almost instantly. None of the Port Authority cops would venture a guess as to where the kangaroo had come from. Animal shipments are not usually handled at LaGuardia since Kennedy Airport is equipped with special pens for animals in transit. In fact, the cops couldn't even prove the whole thing ever happened. Quote, We didn't take any pictures and we disposed of the kangaroo in Flushing Bay, one cop said. Anyway, the ASPCA called back at 7.30 a.m. to check on the request for help, and the Port Authority cops said, never mind, no help was needed after all. And the last story for today I came across while researching the phantom pedicures that you heard earlier in the podcast. This occurred about a year later. It appeared in the July 9th, 1981 edition of the Spokane Chronicle on page 3. The headline reads, Cake Icer Puts Frosting Over Women, Virginia Beach, Virginia, United Press International. 
A man police called a phantom cake icer apparently entered an unlocked apartment and frosted a woman's face and body with chocolate and vanilla icing. Quote, She looked like Al Jolson, Detective Lucian Colley said. She was a mess. Her hair was all matted and she'll have to take her clothes to a car wash to get them clean. The woman's husband and five-year-old daughter slept through the entire incident early Wednesday. Police did not reveal the couple's name. Collie said he found the frosting caper hard to believe until he talked to both the husband and wife and found two half-empty cans of frosting 20 feet from the apartment. The woman told police the man uses hands to smear canned chocolate frosting over her face and blouse and vanilla icing over her terry cloth shorts. He allegedly told her that, quote, she should have known this would happen if you leave your doors unlocked, Kali said. The woman did not get a good look at the intruder because her eyes were pasted shut with frosting, Kali said. Quote, they don't know who it was or what the motive was, Kali said, adding the intruder, if caught, would be charged with burglary and assault. So early in the podcast, I'd asked you about ranch dressing. Did you know where and when it was first created? Well, the story of ranch dressing begins with Thayer, Nebraska native Steve Henson, who moved to Alaska in 1949. There, he became a successful plumbing contractor, building some 2,500 houses and earning, quote, more than he ever thought possible. And it's been said that he concocted his soon-to-be-famous salad dressing as a way of keeping his workers happy. And that is the answer to the question. It was first created in the state of Alaska around 1950. Now, the exact year is unknown, so if you said anything close to 1950, give yourself credit. And if you didn't get the state part of the question correct, don't worry about it. You know why? Alaska wasn't a state in 1950. It didn't become a state officially until January 3rd of 1959. So just where did the name Ranch come from? Well, in 1954, Steve and his wife Gail purchased a 120-acre ramshackle piece of property known as the Sweetwater Ranch. It was located in the San Marcos Pass in San Marcos County of California. They didn't like the name, so they renamed it the Hidden Valley Ranch. And it was part dude ranch, part motel, and of course, part restaurant. And each and every steak that they cooked there was covered with Steve's dressing, which people just love, so they wanted to purchase some and take it home with them. Now, remember that Steve initially created the dressing recipe while in Alaska, and of course, obtaining fresh ingredients there was a challenge. So his formulation primarily relied on dry ingredients to which buttermilk and mayonnaise were later added. And this worked to Steve's advantage. This innovative approach allowed Steve to conveniently provide customers with jars of dry ingredients that they could take home. Then, soon after that, the Hensons adopted the practice of packaging these dry ingredients in envelopes, which simplified mailing and then enabled nationwide distribution. Those packages first hit store shelves in 1957. Without a doubt, by the late 1950s, the Hensons had a certified sensation on their hands. By the mid-1960s, the decision was made to close the guest ranch and focus solely on the manufacture of Hidden Valley Ranch dressing. And having outgrown the buildings at the ranch, the manufacturing was moved to a factory elsewhere. 
And the business had just continued to grow and grow until it was sold to Clorox for $8 million in October of 1972. That's more than $58 million today. And Clorox did tweak the recipe. The first thing they did was to add dry buttermilk flavoring to the seasoning packets. That meant that consumers only had to add milk, you know, regular milk, not buttermilk, to mix up a batch. And then in 1983, Clorox introduced a bottled version of Hidden Valley Ranch, and it didn't require refrigeration. That meant it could go right up on the store shelves with all the other salad dressings. But what really made ranch dressing so popular was the introduction of Cool Ranch Doritos in 1986. This masterstroke of marketing, it opened the door to ranch dressing being used not only on salads, but also as a dip for chips and chicken wings. It can be drizzled on pizza, sprinkled on popcorn, mixed into cake batter, and so much more. That's why ranch dressing is so popular. It seems to be in everything. I hope you enjoyed the stories that I selected for today's retrocast. The Labor Day holiday has got me a bit off my usual schedule, but be assured that I'll be back in a couple of weeks with a full-length story. And the one that I'm currently researching, I think, is very, very good. But I'll keep you in suspense as to what it's about until then. Just a general reminder, if you found this episode or the podcast as a whole enjoyable, I'd greatly appreciate if you could share it with someone, you know, whether that's through Reddit, Facebook, X, you know, that's the platform formerly known as Twitter, or any other method you believe will expand my audience. Please know that anything you can do to help spread the word is greatly appreciated. You can find the Useless Information Podcast on all the major podcast platforms, so don't forget to hit that subscribe button. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you'll find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts, not only in history, but also in science, wellness, education, and the arts. Anyways, as always, thanks for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye.